All right, every once in a while, it's been a little bit too long, uh, people say, man, I wish you'd do that more, is we have question and answer time, you know, Q&A. And every time I do that, it's like, why don't we do that more often, you know? Well, if we always did that, we wouldn't work our way through passages and really dive in to certain books of the Bible and certain teachings, so we kind of mix it up a little bit. But that, this is one of those Wednesday nights where we're going to do question and answer. And uh, if you have a question... Uh, Chad, are some rolling in from YouTube? So whether you're on watch, if you're watching this right now by Facebook or by YouTube, get your, get your questions in. Any kind of theological question on any kind of theological issue. Uh, I don't know all the answers, but I know the one that does know all the answers, the Lord. And we've got his book here, amen. And we do see through a glass darkly, so we won't have all the answers until we're with the Lord. But he has given us uh, everything that pertains to life and godliness, Amen. And his, his word covers everything that pertains to doctrine and practice that we need. Amen? So it could be about uh, salvation. It could be about uh, uh, the second coming. It could be about eternal judgment. It could be about the resurrection. It could be about the word of God. It could be you know, a myriad of questions that can come up. Uh, and I just want to encourage you. And maybe it's a theological issue that maybe you're talking to someone at work or in the neighborhood or, uh, or what have you in a chat room or whatever. And you want help with a certain scripture. Uh, many of you know the positions we hold at Blessed Hope, which, uh, interestingly enough, are what the early church taught for the first few centuries. So uh, we're definitely open to, uh, we like to have lively dis- uh, discussion on these issues. So, uh, so if you have a theological question, you know, it's just a sincere theological question, you know, let's go ahead, raise your hand, chat will go to you, or uh, Big Jim just raised his hand. Uh, Let's go to Big Jim first, and then let's go uh, to that, whatever you have over there, Chad. Okay, sorry. All right. In John 20, 22, and 23. John 20, 22, and 23. I'm uh-huh. saying this out loud for people that get the CD, and they're like, man, and, I didn't, couldn't hear the question, so I'm going to be repeating Jesus you. Jesus said it, when it, he had said this. You don't have to do that. It's on here. Okay, good, 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 good. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 23, he said, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So some people think that, wow, the disciples are like God. They can forgive sins. So if you could like uh, expound on that a little bit. Jimmy, that is a incredibly good question. (laughs) Uh, I'm clueless as to what it means. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's a great question. Roman Catholics use that verse to say, hey, this is for the priest, you know, who sins you forgive or forgiven on earth or be forgiven in heaven and, you know, and so forth. Uh, now, it's a, it is a really, really good question because Roman Catholics often look at that verse, and Jimmy was mentioning how people use that as though, you know, the disciples had the power to forgive, others didn't. And this, the Catholic Church teaches that the apostles basically handed this down through the priesthood and you therefore go when I was a little kid I remember going to the confessional you know dark gloomy you go in and you you confess your sins to the priest and of course I'm sure when I was confessing my sins I didn't know Jesus I was sinning when I was doing it because I was holding a lot back probably uh he'd be there all day probably just listening to my day's sins before I got there but I couldn't remember them all because I just was a rebellious kid but you know you confess them and then he says say x amount of you know our fathers and x amount of hail marys and so forth and I don't think I did that perfectly, and I was just a rebellious kid. But uh, when I became a Christian, and I wanted to understand that passage, along with many other scriptures, some scriptures clearly contradict Catholicism just on their face, you know. But that's a scripture where they try to get a lot of headway out of it. It can be confusing to Christians. So what's the answer to that? What's he saying that? Is that for the Roman Catholic Church? First of all, it's to his disciples, okay? It's hard to say in the context of that passage that it was only the apostles there. So this was, seems, the context seems to be, it was for the believers in general, disciples in general. There's nothing where he seems to specify uh, specifically the apostles. Uh, and we don't, and what's interesting, when you look at the Greek, when Jesus confers upon them, uh, you know, and Jimmy, can you read verse 22 again? And 23, read out loud and listen, listen carefully to what Jimmy says here. He's got a big voice. Yeah, and I, that's where I thought you were going, but we just got the answer to that a couple weeks, a few weeks ago. Exactly. And then in 23, it says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if, if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. 
Right, so forgiven and retained. And notice it says, if you forgive their sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. So some would look at it as, hey, it's specifically when the priest forgives you, you're forgiven, but you need to go to the Catholic priest. Now, is that the normal teaching in Scripture if that interpretation, let's say it was correct? Where do we go over and over again for forgiveness of sins in Scripture? To the Lord, amen? How often do you see uh, people, you know, come to the Lord and him, not, they're not in, in him forgive their sins, right? And throughout Scripture, the Bible says if anyone confesses a sin, he's faithful and just forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What is going on there then? Well, when you put that with Matthew 18 and the Scriptures that talk about forgiven in heaven, forgiven in earth, there's an interesting tense in uh, the verb to forgive. And it's interesting because uh, the tense there literally means those you forgive, and you just read it, and some translations bring it out, actually. And what's really weird, Jimmy, is I don't even remember turning uh, to this, but I have it open to this. So it's really weird. Did I look, look it up? Like, I don't remember doing that. Okay. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. Retain the sins of any, their sins have been retained. And it's hard to translate in English, but it's saying uh, when, you, when you go to the Greek when, and you look at all the scriptures together on this in the Gospels, their sins have already been forgiven in heaven before you even forgive them on earth. And their sins are already retained in heaven before you retain them on earth. We're not doing something and the Lord God says, oh, I guess I can forgive the person now too, you know? Or I guess I, I'm holding your sins against you now. So what's going on here? Well, I, I believe what's going on here is in Matthew 18, Jesus said, if someone comes to you, if your brother sins to you, sins against you, go to him and confront him. And if he repents, you what? You've what? Won your brother. If he doesn't repent, bring one or two with you. If he still refuses to repent, you know, bring it before the church. And then if he doesn't hear the church, let it be considered a what? Tax gatherer, right? And a heathen, you know, and so forth. So he's excommunicated. So what's going on here, I believe, is that believers have to make a decision. In this fellowship, if someone's in rebellion against God, or if someone's in right standing with God, let's say you have two guys here, and they're sitting in the front next to Gerald, so don't look at Gerald, next to Gerald, and, and you know what, it's, it's been known that they've been, you know, bar hopping, getting drunk, and beating people up, and it's just they're, they're revilers, and they're drunkards, and so forth, and they're continually doing this, and they're not repenting, and it's, uh, Gerald's gone to them, and then he brought a, a two brothers with him. Say, you guys, you guys are claiming to be Christians, man, but you're getting drunk, man, and you're, you know, you get, put two people in the hospital and so forth, and and uh, and then he still refused, and then he brings for the fellowship, and then we say, hey, guess what we're saying as a fellowship? It goes to the leadership of the church. We're saying, and one of them repents. We go for the fellowship. One of them repents says, I'm sorry. I can't believe I've done this, man. I've been hanging out. I've been hanging out. We shouldn't be doing this. I repent. I, I stopped doing it a week ago. I'm not getting drunk anymore. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not beating people up, anything like that. I, I feel sick about it. I totally, you know, he's got tears. Not that he needs tears, but there's tears or whatever. And the other guy's like, you know what? You guys can't tell me what to do, man. I'm in a free country. Well, guess what? We recognize that this brother is following the Lord now. He's been forgiven, and we forgive him. Now, it's interesting. The other one, nope, he's not repenting. What do we say to him? I'm sorry, man, there's a door. We'd love you to come back and be right with the Lord sometime. But if you're not going to be right with the Lord, you can't be fellowshiping with us, man. You're giving Jesus a bad name. You're giving this fellowship a bad name. We represent Jesus. Are you with me, guys? So look at how this works out. The Apostle Paul. There's a guy having sex with his mom in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, right? This church is not recognizing, this church is recognizing him as a brother that's in good standing with the Lord, even though he's having sexual relations with his mom, and they're even gloating over it, amen? And Paul is just so disturbed. This is the church that he helped start. He's like, what's going on here? He goes, you should excommunicate this man from the church. Expel him, lest he leaven the whole lump. And when I'm with you, join with you in spirit, you know, to excommunicate the wicked man from your midst. So when they do that, they have retained we're recognizing that he's in rebellion to God. So therefore, we're not recognizing him as forgiven, and we can't fellowship with him while he's in rebellion. Uh, if he comes back, what happens? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, now he's repentant, he comes back. Like in 2 Corinthians, the guy that was having sexual relations with his mom comes back, and now guess what? The Lord's forgiven him, and Paul says, he's good with me. He says, but don't, 
we're not, un, uh, we're, not, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices because you need to do three things, church, at Corinth. You need to forgive him. You need to confirm your love to him. And you need to comfort him. So the church of Corinth, they were like way liberal, right? And then legalistic, acting like this guy couldn't be back in the church, couldn't repent and so forth. Which, by the way, happened in the early church period with some of the church fathers. They wouldn't let people come back after he died and died the Lord. So what's going on there? The church needs to forgive him now, right? And if they forgive him, will God then forgive him or has God already forgiven him? He's already been forgiven in heaven. So if you forgive him, let's read this in the context of that man, right? Uh, chapter 20, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain their sins of any, uh, they have been retained. So what we do, we're part of this process of restoring us. We're the visible body of Christ, amen? We're his hands and his feet. So if someone, and by the way, most churches don't practice church discipline anymore. And they don't recognize how important these scriptures are. So we as a fellowship recognize when someone has rebellion to God and we say, we can't fellowship with you. And if you're a brother in Christ or sister in Christ, you love Jesus and somebody's in rebellion to God and you know they're not following the Lord and you, they don't want to go to church or anything, but you're treating them like a brother and acting like everything's cool. As you know, they're continuing to be rebellion to God. You're not helping that person out. You're actually patting that person on the back on their way to hell. So you need to let that person know, hey, I love you, man, but I can't fellowship with you if you're not going to get right. Because Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 5, don't even eat with such a man. And he says, I'm not saying don't eat with drunkards and fornicators and so forth, because then you'd have to leave the world. We're supposed to be lights to them. But any so-called brother who's living like that. So I believe that's how we forgive and retain. We don't do it, and then God could do it, and then they're right with God if we do it first. God's first, amen? And then we second his notion. And we can only do it by outward observance of what the person is doing. And of course, with witnesses, it can't be a hunch you have. I have a hunch you're not walking with Jesus. You know, it has to be two or three witnesses or what have you. So does that make sense? Praise God. That is a great question. There's a lot of confusion on that question. All right. We'll, we're going to, hey, just for the guys that are here, um, if you have a question, if you raise your hand, then I can come sit next to you for the next one. Uh, and that'll make it a lot easier for me. And then um, I got a couple from online. So we'll do two online. And if you have a question, raise your hand and I'll come sit next to you and be ready uh, to ask your question. But this one has been a couple different people asked this, both Brad and Jim, and they're asking a question regarding the rapture concerning 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and whether the apostasia mentioned in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is not the falling away, but actually the apostasia is the rapture. Okay. Lord, help me do this in 10 minutes. Okay, please, Lord, something like that. Your will be done. What's that? It's already 7.52. <laughs> My clock says 7.50, so I may have 12 or 8, depending on whose clock we're looking at. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, no, it's a, it's a good question. Unfortunately, for those who want to make that the rapture, it doesn't fit linguistically. The Greek word does not help them with making the apostasy of the rapture. And guess what? The context destroys that view as well. It's a very, very popular view. When I debated that subject in Colorado and they invited me to the debate at this big conference with all these different speakers, uh, Prophecy of the News Conference, and I had a great time there. I got to speak on other subjects too, but then the grand finale was this debate. So you have all these Bible teachers and theologians and all these people that are almost mostly pre-trib, right? This is the big shebang at the end and I, I was debating uh, Dr. Stoffer, and we had a great debate. It's online and it's free to watch on our website. Uh, but at first when I was studying his belief system, I thought that he might appeal to that verse. But then I realized that he's King James only pretty quickly. I thought, oh, I don't have to be concerned about dealing with that argument because the King James says that that day, which is talking about the rapture, won't happen until the what happens first? Two things. Apostasy and manalolysis. But guess how the King James translates apostasy? Apostasia is the Greek word there. Falling away. So he's, he thinks that King James is inspired by God specifically. So he can't, he can't say it doesn't really mean falling away. It means the rapture. So I don't even have to go there. But let me just give a few arguments uh, quickly. By the way, I've written over 20 pages on this. And we probably, Chad, need to do a podcast on it pretty soon, you know. But, uh, and it's a great question. I've gotten that question lately uh, from, I've talked to three different people actually recently. And it's interesting because, first of all, 
the Greek word apostasia. It's a noun. We're not talking about the verb form. We're talking about the noun form. Understand this. The Greek noun apostasia that our pre-trib brethren are saying, the apostasia comes first, then the man of sin, and the apostasia must be the rapture. Even though, guess how it's almost always translated in your 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? It's translated as rebellion, fallen away, apostasy. And when we hear the word apostasy, what do you think of? Fallen away, right? The great apostasy. Well, pre-tribbers want to find the pre-trib rapture everywhere because they don't have any clear scriptures on it. So they try to find it somewhere. They say, ah, maybe the falling away right here is really the going up. No, it's not. But they'll say, well, that word can be translated departure. Yeah, you can translate departure. It means departure from the faith in this context. Okay, now check this out. The reason the word linguistically, when you look at the scripture, you look at the grammar, the word apostasy of the noun is uniformly used over and over and over again in a metaphorical sense of spiritual or political revolt. Of spiritual or political revolt. That noun, apostasia specifically, I'm not talking about apostasion. I'm not talking about the verb, epistemi, uh, the related words. I'm talking about apostasia in the Greek. The Greek word apostasia is not used of physical spatial departure, like a rapture would be a physical spatial departure. It's used metaphorically of a spiritual or political revolt or a revolt from the establishment. Okay, give you a couple examples. It's only used one other time. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. And guess how it's used? Now, if it was used of spatial departure, it's, let's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, hey, let's say it means spatial departure, right? Just for the sake of argument later, I'm saying to show you how it still doesn't work in this context. But it's not use of physical spatial departure. I was talking to Thomas Ice before my, interview, before my debate uh, at his table. He's one of the top pre-trib writers, Tim LaHaye's right-hand man before Tim LaHaye died. And when I was talking to him about it, he said, well, uh, so-and-so found one place it's used. Because I said, hey, that word is not translated of physical spatial departure hundreds of years prior to Paul writing this, and it's like four or 500 years later, it's used in the assumption of Mary, a false, a bad writing. It's the first time it's used that way in any kind of religious writing, uh, maybe any writing at that time. Uh, and he said, and he goes, oh, there is one instance it's used, you know. He said, so-and-so found it. Well, you're going to talk about one instance out of thousands and thousands and thousands of times, perhaps, that it's been used and say, well, then maybe one other time it was used here that way, you know. No. That doesn't fit. In fact, if you have your Bibles while I'm talking to save time, that word is used. Uh, it's very easy to remember these, these places. It's used one time other than this in the New Testament. Two times in the New Testament, one time other than this. And that's in Acts 21.21. Really easy to remember that, Acts 21.21. It's used about four or five times in the Greek Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, right? And Aramaic. But it was translated by the Jews into Greek, and that's called the Septuagint. It's used, I think, four times, maybe five, but I think four times, my memory serves me right, in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And uh, go to somebody else, a couple of you can go to Joshua, really easy to remember, 22-22. Acts 21-21, Joshua 22-22. And if anybody is reading Acts 21-21, Paul is talking about, they're talking about how Paul was being accused of teaching the Jews to What? Anybody see the word there that might be apostasia in the Greek? Forsake. Go ahead and read it out loud, Jimmy, that part, really loud. Yeah, so they're teaching, they're claiming that you're teaching people to forsake Moses. The Greek word is apostasia. It's translated forsake. You think you get a pre-trib rapture out of that verse? To be raptured from Moses to heaven. No, obviously not. Uh, in the Septuagint, you have it in Joshua twenty-two twenty-two. Can somebody read Joshua twenty-two twenty-two? Okay, stand up, bro, because the mic's over there. So just read it real loud so everybody can hear it. That's right. Guess what? That's translated apostasy in twenty-two, twenty-two rebellion. Okay, so uh, that word is not used of physical spatial departure. That noun, 
Talking about the Greek noun that's used in 2 Thessalonians. It's used of rebellion. It's used of falling away. It's used of forsaking, okay? So you, our pre-trip friends can't come here and say, oh, maybe the apostasy here is physical spatial departure to heaven. Wrong. You know, and some will say, well, it's been translated departure at times. Yeah, departure from the faith. It's not used of physical spatial departure. Another thing, the very context militates against that understanding. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, just go ahead and read it with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our what? Gathering together to him. In regard to what? The coming of the Lord and our being gathered to him, which is the rapture. And concerning the rapture, what's he going to say? That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or letter as from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come. What won't come? What's he talking about? The rapture. It will not come. It will not come. The rapture will not come unless the what? Apostasy comes first. You see what just happened there? If it means rapture, it would be saying the rapture won't come until the rapture comes first. Are you with me? Just the context destroys that view along with the Greek grammar. Give you one more example. Jesus gave the outline in Matthew chapter 24 that there would be a, many would fall away, right? Then you'd have the abomination of desolation, right? Then immediately after the tribulation, post-trib, Christ would gather his elect from the four winds of heaven, amen? Falling away, right? Apostasia, then what? Abomination, desolation, antichrist, then Christ coming after the tribulation. What do you have here? Same, same order, apostasia, falling away, right? Antichrist sits in the temple. That's the same thing. And then Christ, verse 7 and 8, verse 8. Uh, he, well, well, let's go ahead and read verse 8. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end with the appearance of his coming. Okay? Is that, because we want to get to more questions, is that sufficient? Checkmate, right? Okay. Praise God. All right, we got one from Facebook from Cindy. She is asking, can someone be filled with the Holy Spirit and demon-possessed at the same time? Uh, this is going to be a hopefully not too long of an answer. I could just say absolutely not, you know. Uh, let me say this, though, because uh, she's going to want more of an answer than that. And praise the Lord, thank you. There's, that's a good question. Uh, I personally don't believe that, you, that, that Satan and the Holy Spirit can be roommates, okay? Uh, the Holy Spirit. In fact, guess what? Jimmy just read a verse where it says, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Right? And before that, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will be, is with you, because they were doing miracles by the Holy Spirit, but he shall be what? In you. And that preposition in has to mean in the context of the overall totality of Scripture, in them, in a dimension, in a way that he hadn't been in them before. Okay? So I would say this is that, uh, but guess what? I point that out. Because Jesus had to die for their sins before he could enter, before the Holy Spirit could come live in them and like, like he would. Amen? Amen. That's the, and my point is, is that God is so holy that our rebellion broke our fellowship with him. Amen? Amen? And we had to be forgiven, just like we couldn't go to heaven until Jesus died on the cross. Amen? Nobody had yet ascended, Jesus said, right? But the Son of Man. So when he died, now we could go be in God's presence. In the same way, God couldn't live in our hearts if we were in rebellion to God. Amen? And that's why in Hebrews chapter 6, it warns of those who follow, fell away. It says they had received the Holy Spirit, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit anymore. That's why David said when he was in rebellion to God, take not that Holy Spirit from me. Amen? Now he is repentant, and evidently the Holy Spirit stayed with him for a time, but he had been relying on, on, on the Lord's mercy and everything. But he, if he continued in rebellion, he was in big trouble because adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. He had to repent. Amen? But what I'm going to say this, if the Holy Spirit, if we need to be cleansed from our sins for the Holy Spirit to come into us and live in us, do you think the Holy Spirit's going to be, share, share a bed with uh, a demon? I don't uh, know. And I don't know of any examples in Scripture where you have somebody who's blood-bought following Jesus fill the Holy Spirit and has a demon in them. Now, what I do know this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 2 through 4, Paul says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. And he goes on to say that I fear lest by any means as a serpent beguiled Eve through a subtlety that so your minds might be corrupted from the simplicity of your faith and that you might what? Believe in a different Jesus. Believe in a different gospel and receive a different spirit. Now these are people who are a chaste virgin 
who've been betrothed to Christ, truly belong to him, but their minds can be corrupted even as Eve's was, and they could receive a different spirit. But I personally believe if you receive a different spirit and become possessed, that is the, a consequence of rebelling against the Lord and committing apostasy to where you have forsaken the Lord, and then you've been forsaken because you've rejected him, and then you are, have the, you're, you're, you're open sesame to the devil, man. He could just come right in. So you want to make sure you have the Holy Spirit. So I, does that, is that sufficient? Okay. Because, but you do have to be, as a believer, you have to be on your guard not to get involved in all this junk where they're, they're barking and doing all this weird stuff and everything and they're laying hands on each other to receive the Holy Spirit. People that are getting into this apostasia and falling away right now are opening themselves up to other spirits. I do believe, because I want to say this, because some people are like, but wait, I'm going through some heavy stuff right now and I love Jesus, what's going on? You could be very deeply oppressed as a Christian. Okay, Paul said he had a thorn in the flesh and he was buffeted by Satan. And he prayed three times, Lord, take this thorn from me. Amen. And the Lord didn't even take it from him, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you. So you can beat up, being beat up by Satan. You can be attacked. You can hear voices and stuff like that because the Bible says, take up the shield of faith so you can quench the fiery darts of the evil one. We're in a wrestling match. Amen. Hand-to-hand combat. Praise God. All right, we got one from YouTube. This is from Joshua. He says in John 21, 18 through 19, he talks about Peter's future death and that God would be glorified in his death. This might uh, be more apologetics, but how does God get glory from martyrs dying? Man, that's a really good question. Uh, man, we have a lot of John 20, 21 right now, man. Uh, that's great. Uh, 20 and 21, actually. Uh, so now... The backdrop of that, keep in mind, is that Peter was crying just with deep anguish because he denied the Lord three times after saying he would never deny him, right? So he's in this deep, the throes of pain. Have you ever been through something to where you, 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 know, you felt, wow, I wasn't the best witness in that situation? Or somebody said something about your faith and you're like, man, I wish I would have stood stronger, right? And we learn from those examples and hopefully that makes us pray more and say, God, Lord God, help me be better. Help me to do better because all of us fall short of God's glory, amen? All of us, amen? So we need to constantly be reminded that we need to be witnesses. Well, Peter was going through a lot and he denied the Lord three times Jesus looked at him the trial boom he started weeping Peter did bitterly it says heavy weeping so Peter keep in mind this was a proud man when Jesus says you're gonna deny me three times he said yeah they might all deny you but I'm ready to go to prison and death with you Jesus Woo! and then he didn't even pray in the garden of Gethsemane not much anyway because he's fallen asleep and Pete Jesus said pray spirit's willing but the flesh is weak pray that you don't enter temptation he was sleeping he was snoring and a little bit later he was denying that's why we need to be watchful as Jesus said under prayer in that context and when trials are coming man you need to be watchful your head on a swivel be prayerful stay humble keep on your knees right what's interesting about this situation is I'm letting you know that Peter was hurting so much. And there was this reversal. I've taught on it three or four times since I've been a pastor, four or five times if you count an Israel trip. Uh, and I love it because Peter denies the Lord three times. And keep in mind, when Peter was first called, he was called when he was fishing, remember? And Jesus called him. And he said to make a fisher of men. And Peter's depart from me. When he saw these fish come up, he's blown away, right? And it's interesting, when Peter had denied him three times, Jesus is on the, sea, off on the seashore cooking some fish. Perfectly cooked, probably, right? And Peter and John, they see this, and th- this guy on the boat on the shore. He says, hey, cast your net on the other side. They're like, we've been fishing. I'll say, wow, it's like deja vu, right? And they say, let's just do it. We haven't caught anything. What is it, 173 fish? Nets are breaking practically, right? They bring the haul up to the shore, and it's Jesus, right? And Peter's tripping out. And when's the last time that Peter denied, when did Peter deny Jesus? He was cold, Right? He was by a fire, right? He was trying to get warm, right? Think about it. Really, really, really heavy. Because the same word that's used for fire is only used a couple times. It's used there when he denied him and right here when Jesus is going to restore him. And now Jesus says to him three times, the opposite, Peter, do you love me? And I think what's happening, because what happens if it's early morning and you jump in the water when you don't intend to jump in the water? What do you do? You're shivering, and he's freezing, and guess what? He's getting warm. Sound familiar? This is where you deny the Lord three times. It's kind of the same kind of setting, but Jesus gives him an, an opportunity to what? Reverse it. Do you love me, Peter? Yes. Three times. I don't have time to go through the linguistics of it, but it's pretty cool because it's, do you love me, and it's, do you, do you uh, agape me? Do you agapao me, the, the verb? And, and, you know, the third time he says, do you phileo me? 
Do you even have friendship love for me, brotherly love for me? And you just, I'm not going to ask you. And Peter was grieved because the third time he said phileo. That's what it says in the Greek. And he was grieved and he said, feed my sheep, right? Feed my lambs too, the little ones. We don't just teach the adult. You we're constantly teaching. I love to teach young kids. You know, I'm constantly doing that because I've got grandkids. And if I see your kid coming along, I'm, you know, or whatever. I love to encourage the young people. We need to encourage all the young people in the Lord. So the whole thing is keep in mind the frame of mind that Peter had. And then Peter is told by Jesus, you know, what kind of death he's going to die. How he'll grow old and older and that they will clothe him and they'll take him to a place they don't want, that he doesn't want to go. Or he's not going to be doing his own will. And then guess what? It spoke of, well, let's go there. I'm not going to go there for the sake of time. Because I know we got more questions. I'm just going to say this. He basically tells him you're going to die. And we know that because the, the, the narration there by the Holy Spirit says he told him in what way he would glorify him through his death. So Peter would be martyred. According to church tradition, he was uh, refused being crucified right side up like Jesus. And they crucified him upside down. And uh, so what's happening there? How does he glorify him in his death? It's a great question. Because Peter could have escaped martyrdom. All he would have to do is do what? Deny Christ. Christ. But he refused to deny Christ. I personally believe, this is one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. Why? Because I see what Peter must have just been racked with pain. His whole, everything he he loved. I mean, when they first came to arrest Jesus, he pulls out a sword and takes off Malchus's ear. His heart was in the right place, right? But it was also in the wrong place because he was thinking, I'm better than the other apostles. And he says, do you love me more than these? I don't think he's, some commentators he's talking about, do you love me more than fishing, Peter? You're going back to fishing, aren't you? No, he's fishing with the apostles. They'd already seen the resurrected Christ, including Peter. They're, they're back ready to want to do his will. He said, do you love me more than these, meaning these other apostles that you told me that you said that you were ready to go to prison death with me, but they could all deny you. He's bringing Peter down to earth, saying your love isn't as great for me as you think. You need to grow in love. And then he lets him know, he, but, and that's like, whoa, that's, that's Jesus' correction, man. The Lord cuts deep, amen? But he wants Peter to go away encouraged and said, by the way, Peter, you're not going to deny me in the end. You're going to glorify me by dying for me as a witness. And that would, now, which would you rather do? Be known for the guy who denied the Lord three times or be known for the guy who, yeah, you denied the Lord three times, but you died because you refused to deny him when you got right. That's how he glorified God. By the way, let me give you one more quick example. In Revelation chapter 14, it talks about if you take the mark of the beast, you'll be damned forever, right? And I won't go into the, quoting it or anything because it's, it's long. But then it says, blessed are those who die in the Lord from henceforth. They're blessed if you die because you refuse to take the mark of the beast. And then in chapter 15, John sees uh, the Holy Spirit. God gives a vision of the sea of glass, the crystal sea. And he sees those who are martyred that refuse to take the mark of the beast. You know what it says? It says, now these were people in the world's eyes, they were killed because they didn't take the mark of the beast, you know? They're killed, they're, they're wiped out, they're put to death. In the world's eyes, they're losers, just like Jesus was in the world's eyes on the cross, right? But guess what it says in Revelation 15? These are those who got victory over the beast. Wow, I love it, because they got victory over the beast because they did not, what, love their lives even unto death, Revelation 12, 11, the cross, great cross reference. And the ones who take the mark of the beast, I believe, are along, along with the others that deny Christ, are in Revelation 21, 8, when it gives a list of the damned, the very first ones are the cowards. So we glorify him when we refuse to deny him, even to the point of death. That gives God great glory. Amen? Are you, does it make sense? We can take follow-up questions that are related to the questions that I get as well. Chad. And Mark, Second Thessalonians seven or two. Second Thessalonians two seven. Two seven. Yeah, no. The restrainer. The restrainer. Okay, let's go through this quick. Second Thessalonians two seven, uh, and this one is used by our brothers and sisters that are pre-trib. In fact, this is one of the main arguments that hey, guess what? The Holy Spirit is going to you know uh, take the church bef- before the tribulation period. So in Second Thessalonians chapter two verse seven. Now, don't go to 1-7 because that really clearly shows that God's going to give relief to those who are afflicted at his second coming when the Lord Jesus returns with flaming fire to destroy the wicked. That's when the church gets relief. That's the rapture at the end of the tribulation, at his second coming, not at a secret coming right there. So I just opened to 1-7 on accident, but it's like that just destroys the understanding they have of 2-7, by the way. But anyway, when we look at 2-7, Paul says, 
Uh, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is what? Taken out of the way. Okay? Now, Lord, please help me not be too long on this one. Because I believe, and I did a whole message on this, that this is speaking of the archangel Michael. Until he's taken out of the way. Okay? Now, it's interesting. But before I go into the archangel Michael, for a couple, and I'll do it just for hopefully two minutes, uh, let me say this. Is... First of all, they want him to be taken out of the way to be the church, the bride of Christ. So for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains, meaning the church, or they say, usually they say the Holy Spirit in the church is the one restraining the Antichrist. There's a context here. We just read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, right? It talks about the apostasia and the Antichrist being revealed. And the context is, he won't be revealed until he who is now restraining is taken out of the way. Are you with me? And they say, oh, that must be the Holy Spirit leaving the earth. And the Holy Spirit must be in the church, taking the church with it because the church is holding the Antichrist back. Well, the church couldn't even hold Hitler back, okay? Which is no, nothing compared to the Antichrist. But we won't go there. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who rest now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Okay. First of all, it's kind of hard to move an omnipresent God. Amen? Amen? And the Holy Spirit, and by the way, the Holy Spirit is on the earth during the tribulation period. They usually say it's the Holy Spirit, pre-tribs, our pre-trib brothers and sisters, whom we love. But you say, that's, that's, that's speaking of the Holy Spirit. No. Jesus says in Mark chapter 13, during the tribulation period, when they bring you up before kings or civil leaders or governors and what have you to persecute you, what does he say? And we're taking theological questions. Okay, what does he say? He says, don't premeditate what you're going to say because who will give you utterance at that time? The Holy Spirit will give you utterance at that time. Amen? Holy Spirit, thank God the Holy Spirit's going to be here during the tribulation period. Amen? In fact, when we read in Revelation when the persecution and everything is going on, we read about the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. Amen? The Holy Spirit, prof the, can you prophesy without the Holy Spirit? The two witnesses prophesy for 1,260 days. Re Revelation chapter 11, right? It says they prophesy, okay? The Spirit and the bride say come. That's Revelation twenty two seventeen, And he uses bride. By the way, they don't like to say this is the church because it says he will be taken out of the way. And the church is the bride, so they don't usually say the church. They say the Holy Spirit in the church. Well, by the way, are people saved during the tribulation period? At least some people? Yeah, you can't be saved unless the Holy Spirit's here. Amen? When we talk about being born again, we're talking about being born of the Spirit. Amen? And also, I believe, personally, when you read Acts 2 and Joel chapter 2, that there's going to be an outpouring of God's Spirit in the last days, whereby, because Peter talks about it in his Pentecost sermon, that the sun will be dark and the moon will not give his light. It'll turn to blood, actually, he says. And he says, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Amen? And your old men will see visions. And, 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 it, and that is putting those things together in the very end times. So and it's interesting because I got a, uh, a guy that was doing his, uh, I, don't know if it was a, I don't think it was his doctoral dissertation, but it was a paper for master's uh, seminary. And he said, I'm trying to find a pastor who believes in the gifts of the Holy Spirit today because at master's they don't believe in the special sign gifts and so forth. And I said, hey, I don't go with the crowd that just is all off and all in the weirdness like the charismania, but I don't agree with John either. And sure, so I got together, went to Denny's. In fact, Big Jim was at that talk over there. We had a great time, man. It was great. And I showed him over and over again where the Holy Spirit's still here on earth and still doing things through the body of Christ. And he, and he acknowledged, Jimmy was there. He says, it sure seems like the Holy Spirit is doing things during the tribulation period, you know, uh, and so forth, because I went through the scriptures like I'm mentioning to you. So the Holy Spirit's still here. And by the way, you never make a doctrine out of an obscure verse. This verse isn't real clear, so I would never be dogmatic on it, but I do say it looks like it's speaking of the Archangel Michael. Why? Because the Archangel Michael is the one in the book of Daniel we read about, and elsewhere, he stands guard over Israel. Amen? And right before the tribulation, the great tribulation that last three and a half years starts, guess what? Satan is thrown down, his angels are thrown down with him. Right? And then it says, woe to the earth, for Satan has come down to you having great wrath. And guess what? The archangel Michael doesn't do at that point. Doesn't protect Israel. Okay? And we read of great tribulation taking place in Daniel 12. 
first, first three verses, right when the archangel stands up, and that word I show, I've shown before, uh, as I gave you various examples in the Old Testament, which means ceases to be active, you know, in protection. Then there's this great tribulation. So I don't want to go deeper into that. You can get the archangel Michael message on that. But that's a great question. All right, Rich. and yeah, we yeah plug the uh, Good Fight Radio show. Who's the restrainer? Because uh, oh uh, yeah, we did a whole episode. message. Yeah. Good Good Fight Radio. Who's the restrainer? Good Fight Radio. Go check that out. I think it's only an hour message or half hour. 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 So my question is with regards to over the centuries, those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, can, are they saved? And the specifically referring to Romans. Chapter 2, 14 through 16. Can you read that, bro? Yeah. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are the law unto themselves. In that day, show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts, not alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when according to my gospel... God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Right. No, and that's good. So it talks about how he's going to judge the people that don't have the law and along with the people that, you know, do have the law. And so if you take that and you then go to Romans chapter 10, which this is really powerful. And uh, when Paul's talking about Romans chapter 10, a lot of people quote these verses to say, if somebody doesn't preach the gospel, if you don't get off your rear end and preach the gospel, people are going to be lost because you never got to them. When I read Romans 10 right here, gonna, they, that's what they do often. And, and by the way, we're, we're not minimizing the importance of preaching the gospel. We do missions all over the world. We do missions right here in town. Uh, we, do, we, you know, we do missions, uh, a lot of us go street witnessing and so forth. And so we emphasize the importance of the gospel. But some will use this verse, these verses right here, go to chapter 10. Verses uh, 9 and 10, uh, well, verse 8, let's begin at verse 8. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith, which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. So this gets back to, he's talking about now the Jew and the Greek, those who've had the law, those who haven't had the law. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Verse 13, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You started in Romans 2. I'm going a little bit deeper into Paul, Paul articulating more about hearing and so forth. But look at verse 14. How then will they call on him of whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Verse 15, how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news or good uh, news of good things. Now, it's interesting. I was at a, when I was a young Christian, probably 19, 20 years old or so, uh, 20, 21. I don't know exactly how. I went on a men's, not a men's retreat. It was a youth retreat, actually, up to Big Bear uh, or maybe something like Big Bear, I can't even remember the campsite, you know. And we had a guest speaker, and the guest speaker was an evangelist, and he, he was trying to rally the troops, rally us to go witnessing and share the gospel and go on missions, which was great. But then he went with these verses, and then he said, if you don't go on mission trips and serve Jesus, how are they going to hear the gospel? And you're, it's because of you that people are going to go to hell. Now, he's trying to be as convicting as possible. I appreciate it. He wants to convict us to go out and witness and stuff. That's great. Some of us were already witnessing. I love to share the gospel with everybody. I was constantly doing it. But I went up to him afterwards and said, well, because he said, guess what? If we don't preach the gospel, who's going to preach the gospel? And all kinds of scriptures go to, come into my mind. The Bible says that God has sent forth his angels to those who will inherit salvation. Amen. Angels preach the good news to the, uh, of Jesus' birth to the shepherds, right? And Revelation, but I shared Revelation 14 with him and read it to him. I go, what about this? It says an angel right here preached the everlasting gospel during the tribulation period. And bless his heart, but he had a little consternation. He goes, well, we can't use that verse as an excuse. I go, no, I believe and preach the gospel. I'm just saying it looks like God has other means to get the gospel to people, right? But this is what I want you to do. People stop right there short of something very important. Keep reading, right? 
Look at verse 16, the very next verse I didn't read. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now look at verse 18. But I say, surely they what? But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they what? Indeed they have heard. Ooh, what does he mean here? Then what does he quote? He quotes from Psalm 19, verse 4. Look at this. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. What is he talking about? He's saying they need to hear the gospel. Get out there and go because people need to be sent. We need to send people missionaries. And they haven't heard. So yeah, look, if they haven't heard, man, the, the, the non-believer has a great excuse. He never heard the gospel. But Paul says they, they never heard. He goes, no, they have heard. What do you mean they have heard? Then he goes to Psalm 19.4 and What's the most wonderful, one of the most wonderful psalms on God being the creator of all things? Psalm 19. So go to Psalm 19 really quickly. And we'll just read the first few verses. And in Psalm chapter 19, this is good apologetics, by the way, what we're doing right now too. You can share with the person that you're witnessing to on the street. Well, what about the aborigine, you know? What about the, the people that haven't heard? Well, you can take them right here, just like we just did. Go to Romans. Yeah, you need to believe the gospel. Okay, but guess what? It's saying all have heard in some way. What do you mean? Well, he quotes Psalm 19, 4. Let's start at verse 1. Psalm 19, 1, the context. The heavens are what? Telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out in all the earth. That's what we just read Paul quoting. And their utterance is to the end of the world. See, and he goes on to say, in, uh, in them he has placed a tent for the sun. Now you go back to Romans. How does Paul start in Romans 1? Creation bears witness of God's glory and who he is. Even his invisible, eternal attributes. And, those, uh, and it says he's made, and even though they knew God, now they didn't know God through the personal gospel of Jesus Christ, but they knew him in, in their hearts who he was, right? They didn't seek to retain the knowledge of God. And in their foolish hearts, they were unthankful and so forth, given over to depraved minds, knowing, it says, that inwardly, knowing, knowing in their hearts that they were worthy of death. That's pretty heavy. It shows that they, they are without, and he says they're without excuse. So they knew God. They didn't seek to retain the knowledge of God. They're without excuse to the point that they know that those who practice these sins or practice are worthy of death. So the non-believer has a lot of witness from the heavens about who God is, how powerful is this internal witness, amen? So now if you respond to the internal, uh, uh, the internal witness, and you respond to the external witness. And the Bible says in John 1, 9 that Jesus enlightens the heart of everyone that comes into the world. Everyone. So, and the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. Okay? So you have a bunch, bunch of other things going in concert where God's working on people. And those who respond to the little bit of light that God gives them, he gives them more light. Jesus said, walk in the light in John chapter 12 while you have the light. For there will be a time when the light isn't here. But walk in the light now so you can become children of light. So if we respond to the light of creation... The light of conscience, will, it'll bring us to the light of the cross, right? That's why it says in Psalm 14, those who fear him, he reveals to him the teaching. Or the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. So those who respond, like Cornelius, he didn't know the gospel, right? But he knew the that there was a creator, right? And he started responding to the creator. He started giving to the poor, fasting, and so forth. And guess what? Remember, that's when God brought a vision to him, Right? Angels to Peter and so forth brought vision to Peter. Angels brings the two together and Peter preached the gospel to him. And then what does the Lord say? What does Peter say? I've learned now that God is not partial. Jew and Greek, right? He's not partial, but everybody who fears him from all the different nations are welcome to him. So if you respond to some light like Cornelius did, right? He'll give you more light, okay? So now you get into, we got, now I'm going to say it gets a little, uh, it gets a little bit deeper as far as when that happens, where that happens, how that happens, right? And it's hard to be specific. I just know I was preaching a message on this using different verses and some of the same verses. And I've told this story before. A gal raised her hand and she's only come here a couple months. Her name was Hilda. She came here actually after that for another couple years or so. And she moved. But Hilda said, because I was saying that God could reach you through an angel. God could reach a non-believer through a dream. God could reach you in all kinds of different ways. If by the way, is he going to send his son to die for everybody, but somehow miss out on somebody who is willing? No, because what did Jesus say in John 7, 17? He that wills to will the do, he that wills to do the will of the Father will know the doctrine. 
In the context there of John 7, 17, the doctrine of who Jesus is. That's the debate, who he is. He that wills to the will of the Father will know the doctrine. So if somebody responds to the light God has given, he'll give them more light and they'll arrive at the gospel. As I'm sharing these kinds of things, Hilda raised her hands and she is, I don't know what specific position she had at the hospital here to see me, but she was watching over people on the machine. This guy was in a coma and a Muslim. And she said, he woke up from his coma and she was looking after him. Okay, and he, she, he said, Jesus is God. Okay, and she said that he had led all kinds of people to Christ in the hospital since that time. And she was, I don't know how long she had been there at that point. Carol, do you remember how long she'd been there at that point? Because I saw you shaking your head, not this way, but this way. <laughs> A little while though, huh? Do you, what's that? Oh, I thought she said she has a lobotomy. I'm like, well, maybe she's not the incredible witness, you know. She's in the last row back there. She's a phlebotomist. Gotcha. Do you remember that happening? Carol was there. Steve was there. Praise God. It was powerful. It was like, wow, and a sincere gal. She's like tripping out because she was a newer Christian though, right? Because she's tripping out, and uh, it was pretty cool. So... Right. Yeah. No, and that's a good question. On that day refers throughout the New Testament often to his coming. Right? That's a great question. It's actually, if you look up, put a little on that day and Google it, Bible, the word Bible, and on that day you'll see all kinds of references, which is really cool because you can see, you'll see it's actually good for our, our, our post review because it speaks of on that day, the day that we're looking for over and over again as that day meaning the Lord's return. And sometimes it's his return in judgment. Sometimes it's to catch us up. You know, it's the same coming. But on that day, amen. And they will be judged. Everybody's going to be, the wicked will be judged for what they've done by his gospel. If, they're, if they were saved and they received Christ as Messiah, they'll be saved and then they'll be rewarded for their works and they'll have loss for their works, but they'll be in heaven. The, the, those Gentiles that turn to Christ, right, they'll be judged and rewarded for their works. Those who rejected Christ, Gentiles, will, be set, will, will have eternal punishment. But it's a great question. Um, in context, uh, Romans 9 for the, from a Calvinist worldview is... You're going to go into Romans 9 with how much time left? <laughs> <laughs> Lord have mercy. Um, so there's a quote from John Bunyan saying election... I just got the 15-minute sign, so we're... we're ...is we're, we're, as eternal as God is. Um, and then Romans 9, 15, for to Moses, he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion consequently therefore it does not depend on the one who wills or on who runs but on god who shows mercy and then it quotes the old testament with Pharaoh. right now the danger of getting to romans 9 is i'm going to want to get into a lot of other verses and i want to go to the old testament show context and everything but we need to answer i need to answer the question i love romans 9 but i want to maybe get one one other question in besides this one which is a great great question a brother so in romans 9 he, uh, you know, I have mercy, I'll have mercy, you know, right? And you want to read that last part again? Mercy, mercy, and heart, and so forth. Read it real loud. Or, you know, just yeah. like there. Um, so then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And then it says, for Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raise you up to demonstrate my power in you, that by my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Right. So it's about having mercy and it's about hardening, right? Now, you read, you read that and I'm not sure exactly what you want me to mention. You want me to respond to runs and wills or run, uh, mercy, mercy and hardens, hardens? Or um, both. Or both. I, I would both. say the uh, mercy. Okay. Yeah. Okay, let me deal with runs and wills first real quick then, still, even though you don't want, need that. Uh, first of all, the co- context of Romans chapter 9, go there w- if you will. Uh, some of our Calvinist friends say that God has reprobated some people for eternity and they have no choice in their salvation and he just never wanted them, so he predestined them before the world was to be eternally damned. It's called double predestination. They predestined other people's life. Others believe in single predestination like many Lutherans. They predestined people's life, but he didn't predestine people to damnation. But guess what? 
you've got kind of the same net effect. If you predestine people life, but you don't predestine others, they're basically predestined damnation, right? So they teach that hardening, divine hardening, is God just didn't choose you from before. And most people, if you go with what Jesus said about most people going down the broad road of destruction, most people were chosen for damnation and, and damned beforehand and hardened. And the others were enlightened and so forth. And they say, well, that's what's going on there, you know, in, in Romans and so forth. Guess what? First of all, and they're saying, oh, runs, wills, that means you have nothing to do with your salvation and so forth, which would contradict Romans chapter 9. Read verses 30. I'm turning there still. Verses 30 through 33. 99.99999% um, that's where we want to go. Yep, 30 through 33. They stopped reading at Romans 9 before 30 through 33 often. I think John Piper has a comment a lot on Romans 9, but he stops right before 30 if I remember right. I'm like, why do you, don't you go through the verses that totally contradict your interpretation? Verse 30, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? The righteousness which is by what? Faith. Salvation is conditional upon faith. Verse 31, but Israel pursuing what? A law of righteousness did not revive, revive, arrive at the law. Why? Because they were predestined to damnation. No, that's not what it says. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They what? Stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of fence. That's Jesus, by the way. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Go to chapter 10, verse 1. There's no chapter breaks. It would just keep reading. Brother, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for their what? Salvation. That's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He wants the salvation of those who are rejecting the Messiah. Amen? And by the way, what did Jesus say? And that's where our soteriology starts is Christology. Jesus, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen, your children together as a hen as their chicks, but you were what? Unwilling. We can go back to Romans chapter 2 where Rich was just a few minutes ago with his great question. Right before that, well, several verses before that, verse 11 says God's not partial. Verse 4 talks about the Jews who harden their hearts. And it's his kindness that leads them to repentance. He wants to lead them to repentance and his kindness. Because repentance leads to life. But they refuse to repent. Therefore, they're storing up wrath for themselves. So before you get to Romans 9, we have to understand Romans 2 says that God's not partial, right? They're hardening their own hearts, right? And by the way, our Calvinist friends want us to believe that in Romans 9, those who are hardened were hardened by divine determination and fiat before the creation of the world, right? Because of God's divine plan, and they're stuck hardened. That's not true. Go to Romans 11, two chapters later, and it says if they don't keep a hardened heart, What? They can be, read all of Romans 11. It talks about those who are hardened can become unhardened and they can come back to belief and they can be grafted back in again. Amen? So it's not a, a, a settled state. It has to do with your own response to God's grace. Now, as far as he who runs or wills, the context of Romans 9 is runs and wills according to what? According to the law. That's the context. Amen? It's not willing according to faith because the very next chapter Paul says, whosoever what? Will will be saved, amen, in regard to faith because that's the terms in which God set up his divine program that people are saved by grace through faith, but they have to put their trust in Jesus. Now, in regard to those who uh, have mercy on who he has mercy, right, and will harden those who he hardens, who does he harden? It's what we call in theology ju judicial, judicial hardening. And that is a hardening based on if people reject the gospel and they reject the light that's given to them, just like in Romans 1, they reject the creator, right? He gives them over to what? A depraved mind. Hardness of heart. He gives them up. Now, he said to the Jews who rejected him, how often I would have gathered together your children as a hen does her chicks, but you were unwilling. If you reject him and reject the light, you're going to have greater and greater darkness and greater and greater hardening. Are you with me? But even the hardened, according to Romans chapter 11, can respond. As far as having mercy on whom he will have mercy, that goes back to the Old Testament quotation when God is dealing with his people and, uh, and there's a seeking of forgiveness and God says that he'll have mercy on who he will have mercy. That's true. He decides who he's going to have mercy on. But guess who God promises to have mercy on? God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Now go to Romans 11.32 and look what he says here. And I'll just, we'll finish with uh, Romans 11.32, then get maybe one more question or so. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may have what? So that he may show mercy to who? All. Now, when he says he shut up all to disobedience, does that mean most people have been disobedient or all? 
without exception. Amen? All without exception. There's a parallelism going on here. So the second all cannot mean a small amount of people that he wants to show mercy on because the all is a, it's called parallelism. So we're looking at the same all. So he shut up all in disobedience, his law, because his law is the truth that leads to Christ, that he might have mercy on who? All. He wants to have mercy on all. The question is, will we respond to his gospel call? Amen? So this, by the way, you want to you memorize Romans eleven thirty two, 32, okay? If you, if you will. I mean, I love that verse. All right, we got one from Melissa. She's asking because she was challenged by a uh, oneness, I believe, saying that Acts 2.38. Chad, explain what a oneness Pentecostal is so they get a little more. All right. So I just get you talking a little bit, bro. Yeah, no, no problem. Uh, oneness Pentecostal is somebody who believes in what some call Jesus only or also modalism, modalism which yeah. means that in terms of the Godhead, rather than there being three persons in the one Godhead, there's actually just one, and he goes into modes, as in when he left, he goes into the mode from father to son, and he goes in from the son, then becomes the Holy Spirit. So it's a, it's a cult. Uh, it's an ancient heresy that's been refuted by the church for a couple thousand years. That's right, so. bro. Uh, but in this oneness cult, one of the things is Jesus only, and specific to that is baptism. Yeah. So in Acts 2.38, they tell them to baptize in the name of Jesus. So does that mean that we should not baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but rather just in Jesus? Hmm. So I have one passage that says they baptize in the name of Jesus. I have another passage where Jesus expressly commands us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, Matthew 28:19-20. Uh, and, and he says, and baptize them, a command from Jesus, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Which one do I believe? Which one do I go by? Both. Why? Because Jesus commanded to baptize the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when I baptize the name of the Father, and Holy Spirit, guess, who I'm, guess whose name I'm baptizing them in? The name of Jesus. When I baptize the name of Jesus, guess who I'm baptizing them in? Whose name? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because when you say is baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the term name right there is speaking of his authority of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How do I know that? Well, a couple verses before that, Matthew 28, 18, it's, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. And some translations will have power, but authority is a better translation there because power is better translated from the Greek word dunamis. This is exousia, which is, refers to God's authority that in all authority in heaven and earth is given unto Jesus. Amen? And then Jesus, with all authority over heaven and earth, which is pretty powerful, by the way, baptized them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. So it's when you say stop in the name of the law, you're saying stop in the what? Authority of the law, right? Now you can say stop in the authority of the law, or you can express it a little more you know, elaborately, stop in the name of the law of California and this particular city and this particular police precinct. Okay, you can get more elaborate. It means the same thing, right? So what I'm saying is whether you say the uh, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or you say the name of Jesus, they were simply saying that it was in the authority of Christ that they were baptizing. Not that they were using those specific words, but it was in his authority that they were baptizing. And if you're baptizing the authority of Jesus, you're also baptizing the authority of who? The Father and who? The Holy Spirit, amen? So when I baptize or we baptize, we baptize in the authority of Jesus. We baptize in the name of Jesus. Absolutely. But we say in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because I just like to do exactly what Jesus says to do. Okay? When, uh, when Paul's talking to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 3, 7, um, he's talking about false teachers. Mm. And talks about some gals that were, uh, uh, looks like maybe it's in it's some Gnosticism. But uh, he says uh, distinctly in 3.7, he says, uh, always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. So that Gnosis, what, can you expound upon that? Oh, man, that's a good question, man. Yeah. Uh, and really, so, and it's, it's good, Mark, that you're seeing there's a, there's a Gnosis going on there, man. Uh, well, they're always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, you know. The word gnosis in itself isn't bad. You know, it's used in a positive sense throughout the New Testament. Uh, the word epinosis is really a rich word, right? Experiential knowledge, you know. Uh, but they're ever learning, but they're not able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, first of all, what does it mean to come to the knowledge of the truth, you know? Uh, that means salvation, I believe, right? Because 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, 5, and 6, 
uh, he says that God wills that all would be saved, verse 4, and come to the knowledge of the truth. Same construction, you know. And then he says, for he gave himself for ransom. He's not willing that any, or he wills that all be saved, come to knowledge of the truth. Uh, there's only one meeting between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Which I think is really interesting because he's emphasizing there's only one mediator between God and man. And Mark's picking up on something, which he, I'm sure you see in other verses too. In First and Second Timothy, he's battling against incipient early Gnosticism. And that's why he closes First Timothy chapter 6, verse around 18 or so. He says, to watch out for that which is falsely called science in the King James, falsely called knowledge in most of our translations, falsely called gnosis, you know. And because there's, that's what's falsely called gnosis, the Gnostics were teaching that there were different mediators that would reveal truth, and Christ was just one of them. Hence the emphasis on there's only one mediator between God and man. And that we have to come to the knowledge of the truth, meaning in that mediator, Jesus, and he's the only way to the Father. And he emphasizes in First and Second Timothy that he was a descendant of King David, that he's tied to the Jewish scriptures, that he was a literal man and so forth. And I'm going to go off. It's the last question. I want to really get done at 845. But I'm going to say this. There's a lot where you can see that Paul is dealing with Gnosticism. So it's kind of interesting. Ever learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, Irenaeus, when he writes against heresies, one of the most important church fathers, the top apologist, along with Justin Martyr, the second century, he calls against heresies, he calls it, uh, he specifically, the subtitle to his against heresies is that which is, and again, that which is falsely called gnosis, you know. So they understood in the early church that these Gnostics were teaching a false knowledge, where in Gnosticism, you, now this is pretty good insight, because I see where you're going with that, Mark. They're ever learning, which is what the Gnostics were constantly learning Constantly learning. So it's very possible because, but he's speaking of the last days and neo-Gnosticism, the New Age movement is so popular today and it talks about sneaking into homes unaware. You have Eckhart, another Tolly, Tolly Eckhart, Eckhart from Germany, you know, Oprah Winfrey, opened the floodgates of Gnostic books and so forth into people's homes. So I like the application actually there, Mark. It's really good. Uh, they're constantly getting brought up in the New Age movement, which is neo-Gnosticism. And that is that Jesus, in fact, Oprah Winfrey is basically a neo-Gnostic. And somebody came up, but I disagree because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one, and everybody was clapping. I don't know if they clapped today, but that was some years ago. We actually played a clip from that. But they're constantly being taught this, that salvation comes through knowledge, through gnosis. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was serpent's original lie. So I personally believe uh, that 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 is probably, and you can apply it to, you know, Darwinism and all kinds of things are constantly learning, not able to come to knowledge of the truth, but uh, Gnosticism very well could be one of the things that Paul's concerned about uh, because I don't believe, for him, Paul's last days wasn't just the very, very end, right? It was, you know, the, the, the era of grace by which people would be getting uh, deceived. So that's a great question. And I want to go into it more, but first and second Timothy, read them with glasses on that say Paul's dealing with Gnosticism here and you'll trip out, you know. You know what, we got one minute left. If it's an easy question, I'll try to give a minute answer. I always try to squeeze, it's my problem, I have a real problem in life. I squeeze everything out of the last minute, I get in trouble. But one last question. Oh, Diane. How could Jesus love us so much when we are so bad? And all I can say is we know he loves us so much because he gave himself for us. And that's grace, amen? And that's his nature because God is good. God is good. All the time. Because that's his nature. Because that's his nature. He is love. God is love. First John 4, 1 John 4, 16. And we don't understand it. Can't get our brains around it, but we're very thankful for that reality, amen? Great way to end it. 8.45 exactly up there. Can we all please stand? Love you guys. Got a great, brothers, a great group of brothers and sisters here. You know what?